massively kick off. So <laughs> this is like a football, like a sexy football match where everyone on the team is wearing an Al Cliver mask. <laughs> and yet they are teams of one. <laughs> um, just one one man and ten mirrors. That's got to be a film. Um, Replicating yeah, so this, Al Cliver endlessly. If there was a film about a man standing on a football pitch surrounded by replicas or mirror images of himself, it would feature Jean-Claude Van Damme. Let's mm-hmm. get that out of the way straight away. Because he did like Replicant, Double Impact, uh, Time Cop, he saw himself twice. The film about the trousers. Uh, uh, knock off yes, the film where he's looking for some dicky trousers on a boat um, I've got Sudden Death by the way where he's looking for a bomb in an ice rink or some shit <laughs> I've, got that, I've got that on uh, on Laserdisc along with Maximum Risk with Natasha Henstrich where he has a really awkward sex scene with a clearly uncomfortable um, <laughs> so yeah this is Kino Kingdom 26 and uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a few. It's been a really strong week for me. I've got a film that I, I know I've messaged you about separately to say I, I knew it was going to be my film of the week, and I watched it very early on. But there are a few others. I squeezed in three films yesterday, and each of them was solid gold. So I'm, it's pretty strong uh, showing from me. Not quite as strong for me, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure we'll find some value in uh, some of my choices. <laughs> You did. Is it what you need to do? You need to start watching films that at least feature Richard Jenkins, so you know you're going to get some sort of quality. Yeah, I, I know I should do. Or Ron Perlman, I suppose. I did watch a film with Ron Perlman recently, but that's for next week. Is it Chronos or is it not? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll um, keep it. I'll keep it under wraps for now. Well, um, I'm gonna. We've obviously got a lot to get through. So I'm going to go hurtling in, get the sponsorship out of the way. It's actually a pre-recorded one this week. Oh, yeah. So I can just sit here and sip my Ribena. Yes, that's right, because I forgot to dash out and get beers for this. So unfortunately, I won't get drunker and drunker as it goes on. <laughs> um, and by the end of it, I'll be saying, this is Nicholas Cage and Ron Pillman's Season of the Witches, bloody good film. Um, I won't be saying that. I don't um, think anyone's ever said that, to be fair. I can't even remember. I remember it being on the television okay. so there were <laughs> images projected from the television and you observe them with your eyes it was in a room that wasn't totally silent the so, most in-depth review i've ever heard they i honestly my job at empire lasted nanoseconds serving <laughs> <laughs> the tv screen and images were being projected and there was sound it's incredible. I, I looked down. I was holding this uh, pop corn I've been reading about in the papers. <laughs> yeah, really bad. Um, and yet still better than Johnny Vaughan. So uh, <laughs> here we go. So this is this week's sponsorship. I'll just uh, I'll just uh, check it on for you. And today we're sponsored by Acapella Cave Crooning with Yian Blevin from his recent debut album, Is Anyone the One? Featuring the songs, You Were the One. You. the one oh you weren't the one no no you thought you were the one you thought you were the one 
I wish you were the one. Oh, I wish you were the one. Oh, Susan. Oh, Susan. Tell me your name again. Everyone thinks you're the one. Susan. Where are you, Susan? Where are you now? I'm starting to think that you aren't the one. To think you aren't the one. Come back, Susan. The son of my father's wife is the brother to the one I used to want to love, but couldn't but wish I had. The son of my father's wife is the brother to the one I used to want to love, but couldn't but wish I had. Tell me you're the one, even if you aren't. dance remix of his signature song Where Have All The People Gone 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 Listen now to Yayan Blethin live on streaming services worldwide Oh, it's a, a it's a post-war sort of vibe to that. Mm. It's I'm just amazed by the the range. To be honest, the different sounds you can achieve with his voice, and the di- the different themes. Did you notice because, that? Go on, sorry. Because at first it's like she's definitely the one. Then there's that that seed of doubt about whether she is in fact the one. And by the end, I'm pretty sure she's not the one. Yeah, and and then then there's that sort of uh, misplaced hopefulness in the relationship. Like I you mm. I know you're probably not the one, but maybe even if you aren't, we can make a go of things. And I, and I whatever did, happens, I'm going to bloody sing about it. <laughs> I tell you what, quite literally as well. It, it, I did notice a few if it sort of passed you by a little bit that every single title was also the opening line of the song. You know, I'm not, a, you're more of a music man than me. I mean, you're more in the industry. So a layman like me wouldn't wouldn't pick up on that, I suppose. I think it just opens to, I mean, you don't have, you do want a song called You Are To The One, and then you don't say that in the song because people will be like, well, is she or isn't she? You know, you've got to have a literal yeah. path, a narrative path. You haven't addressed the title yeah, directly um, and endlessly. And I do like the fact that it, he's obviously recorded those a cappella live in a cave somewhere in Wales. I do like that. So it's it's a nice natural reverberance. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, quite pleased. That Possibly an abandoned mine. Who knows? 
I'm also really surprised that the remixed track at the end is literally an in-joke we had last week. That's <laughs> astonishing. I can't believe that. That's quite cool. Coincidence. Uh, and, of course, before we go talking about films, which is what we're supposed to do in this podcast, uh, it would be remiss of me if I didn't press the button on my random film generator to see if, again, anyone out there uh, coming up with, trying to come up with a film and they, they're staring at a blank piece of paper where the script should be, maybe this can set you off on a path. Laughing at memories. Laughing at memories. I mean, that could be a. When I think of if you said to me, Britt, I'm writing a film called I'm writing a script called Laughing at Memories. It would I can imagine it would be two people on the front, one of them possibly on crutches, uh, just just laughing on like a the edge of a quarry at a blue sky. And it yeah. would be one of those films you put on to feel good, but then halfway through you just get really, really sad because it takes a massive tonal turn. Yeah. Oh yeah, certainly. Well, I think we're on the same page there. It wouldn't be a comedy; just it would be, it would be a dramedy of some sort, wouldn't it? Laughing at memories. It'd be memories of humorous things that happened but aren't happening now. And yeah, so it'd be really, really depressing. Possibly be... starring Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yeah. And probably a remake of like a French original or something. <laughs> Yeah, and the French title would be Carte d'Or. <laughs> yeah, and all the reviews would say, oh, it hasn't got the spirit of the original. And then you'd be thinking, well, I don't really want to watch either, to be honest. But I'll probably watch the English language version, if anything. And then they would release like a black and white cut and people would say, oh, it's a lot better now. <laughs> a better film now. It has become better. <laughs> so, um, the first film I'm going to briefly... I've got a few two-minute trash-ins uh, I'm going to get out of the way. The first of which is Out of Sight, which you covered not that long ago. Um, came across this on Amazon Prime. And it's a bloody good film, Rupert. You were right. Bloody, you were right. Good it's, it's so... You're right about the chemistry between them. Because um, I was very aware that you made that point, that you could you could understand why those two people, Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney, would fall in love. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it really is... It really does work. Um, I think and it's I think because they're both just really sexy. It's not much more than that. Yeah. Well, it's really sexy. And I think they, they spend, I think they're so kind of lost in their own, sort of, sort of their own ways. And you can see that, you can see how it would, that scene in the um, in the bar with the bourbon is, um, yeah. is really nice when he rocks up. When those three guys come over and try chat the blinds, it's so embarrassing. And of course, the music is just, sort of like really mellow low heavy like bass with just yeah. a, like a really basic back and drum beat good absolutely fine yeah i think it's by david holmes the music and he's yeah so he's quite a, a good trip hoppy type artist so yeah trip hop is a good genre of music and um i watched then obviously as i got on my george canoe and sailed down the rapids i watched burn after reading which is a film i watched once and don't really remember much of it apart from Brad Pitt being in it. And I watched it again, and I get I enjoyed it, but um, it's one of those films where I get the impression everyone's making it just to have a bit of fun. And yes, I, I, I was I found it amusing, but every single person in that film has a quirk of some sort. And I found myself thinking, 
the, I, I was waiting for a part that I remembered I liked and wasn't in the film much. And what I was waiting for effectively was for, um, oh God, what's his name? It's not David Rash. And oh, who's the bald guy who was in Whiplash? Played J.K. J. Simmons. J.K. Simmons. I just kind of wish the film was centered more around that than yeah. what it is. Yeah. So, I, um, it, it's it's Coen Brothers, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. I, I, I My heart sinks a little bit when I hear Coen Brothers comedy. Although they did do The Big Lebowski. So, I mean, they are capable of doing... I thought you liked films. El Caesar. Um, I like bits of it, um, but not all of it. I wouldn't say it's a film. Like if if I was thinking, oh, I want to sit down and watch a comedy and laugh, I'm not thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to reach for a Coen Brothers. Film. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I I think it's they've they've obviously got the tone of comedy is the similar in a lot of their films. Yes. And I can imagine that, although they did get me to look at Christophe Lambert and Clancy Brown in the same film with Hey Caesar, but with them, when they make a film, I can imagine if you click with the humor, you would find it very, very, very funny yeah, and quite niche. But for us, like I just find the mid ranges. Yes. And Big Lebowski is uh, aside because that scene where the, he throws the coffee mug at him from holding it like cupped in his hand as a handle and just pushes his arm forward and caps him on the head. It's one of the funniest things in cinema history. I think the bit where he is <coughs> smoking a cigarette in his car, driving his car, smoking a cigarette, drops the cigarette and uses an open beer to put it out on his crotch and then crashes. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> Or when Maud asks him post-coitus what he gets up to and he just says, ah, oh, you know, the usual driving round, the occasional flashback. Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. Again, that is funny and the other films are not as funny. And the third one is, yeah, I watched the Theatre Bazaar, which is a horror anthology with a, a wraparound starring Udo Kier as uh, an automaton got paint flaking off his face. Good. And it's quite a nasty one. It's very long. It's about two and a half hours. And this feels like there's about five or six segments in it. And the best of which is a one that is just about a couple effectively breaking up in a German flat. And it's the less, the least visceral of them all. And mm. I think that's because a lot of the other um, stories in it kind of devolve into just, they're just a bit uh, mean spirited, a bit full on. Or like one little idea that's pushed for a bit too long. So it's interesting and it's quite it's quite gutsy and gory if you fancy that kind of thing. But um, it's not mm. one that I'd probably watch again. It's so long. Yes, it was very... I, like I said, I kind of half watched it because I was doing something else at the time. So I don't want to talk about it too much. But mm. I did see them all and I did think oh, some of these are just full on and, and not particularly good. Yeah. So uh, the, the Théâtre Bizarre and that's 2011. And that's it. They're my they're my little catch ups. So I'll let you um I'll let you get onto one if you fancy. Well, I can do a little catch up myself because uh, you okay. recommended Intruder last week, yes. uh, which is on uh, it's on Prime via Full Moon um, channel. Anyway, this is a it's a slasher set in a supermarket, and I I really liked it. Uh, it's got decent characterization. Um, uh, it's got constantly kind of inventive cinematography, very rhymy esque. Um, it's got good red herrings, good tension, good pacing, very inventive kills, and really quite gross as well. Some of the kills. Um, 
uh, I love the the scene where the final girl is running around discovering all the bodies and they're all arranged in really <laughs> grotesque ways. Um, and and I I thought it was it was good value for money in terms of like a slasher because you get the initial kill plus the aftermath. I mean, slashers usually give you one or the other, really, but you get you get everything here. And it's set over a single night. Good. Love that. Mm-hmm. It's atmospheric. There's no real forced drama and needless bickering, none of that sort of thing. It reminded me slightly of a film called Miracle Mile, which starred, which okay. is 80s film, which starred Anthony Edwards, which is, by the way, another hidden gem. And it's set over a different, uh, over a single night. But that's quite a different story, but and not really a horror. But but Miracle Mile is very recommended. It's a romantic comedy, really whimsical romantic comedy. Well, it's quite a cool idea actually, because it's basically he, um, it's it's basically where he goes to this diner at night and hears a rumor, and basically he starts this rumor that um, the world is about to end. And it, and it, it quite absurdly um, uh, kind of disseminates itself, this rumour, until, and within hours, the whole city and then the whole world is convinced that the world is about to end. And so it all just kicks off massively, and it's all because of this sort of misinformation at the very start. It's a really cool idea. Anyway, so yes, that's Miracle Mall, but that's over a, a one night as well. Um, I've got a one-nighter coming up as well, actually, which I think you'll one. enjoy. Yeah, I think in, with Intruder, it's probably too basic and too derivative to quite join the ranks of absolute classic 80s horror. But I'd say it's in tier two, um, <laughs> so, which is a pretty good one. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely it, worth having a look at. It's it's a we, it's weird that neither of us have ever really heard. Well, I'd never heard of it at all. Um, and I watched it and thought that was like really, that wasn't just serviceable. That was a good film. And it's just bizarre that uh, it hasn't mm. cropped up in the past. Um, so, uh, how many have you got? Because I've got another eight or nine. Oh, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Well, evenly I'll, I'll start with the, the serious one because I've only got one like serious one uh, okay. to mention this week. And that is The Help, which is on Prime. And it's set in 1963. And Emma Stone plays Skeeter, uh, a young wannabe writer living in small town Mississippi. And she decides to write a book from the perspective of the help. These are the black women essentially raising white children into adulthood. So she starts interviewing them and it becomes a local scandal, uh, and it, which puts her and the interviewees in danger. Um, but the idea is that hopefully some minds in the community can be changed and at least at least the maids themselves can be humanized so the facts behind this uh you know this film uh, which was based on a book um are brutal because you know black people were these black women were just bullied and disrespected and underpaid um you know they're expected to use a separate toilet they're dehumanized really and the film certainly paints a picture of life under the Jim Crow laws. Um, So it is laudable on the surface, at least, but it really does indulge some pretty dated tropes, specifically, or most most predominantly, the white saviour 
and the magical Negro tropes, um, the white saver doing what it says on a tin, on, and then you've got the magical Negro who's the the kind of uh, the black person who's a, sort of the font of this magical wisdom. Um, and so at its very best, it's... You can say what it is, Rupert. It's, it's Will Smith and the legend of Bag of Vance is the perfect exactly. example of that. Um, so at its very best, it is a sentimentalized depiction of pre-equal rights, pre-civil rights USA. But at its worst, it's just dishonest, to be honest. I know at the time the film was criticized for trivializing the plight of the black female servants. And there is something weirdly breezy about the whole thing. It has a sort of lightness of tone, which is clearly designed to make sure the film reaches a lot of eyes. But it also undermines the kind of existential misery of the people in question. So it's it pulls its punches and it is disingenuous in its tastefulness. And and moreover, um, it, it, it has this adherence to the classical Hollywood narrative structure, so, which means we we kind of get a happy ending, which is ridiculous given the parlous state of these women um you know these are women who've never been allowed to be educated they've been subjugated their whole lives and the pretty white girl gets to live it up in new york city at the end it's like mm, okay it's it looks happy on the surface but really what <laughs> it's really not um and the black men are weirdly absent from the narrative in fact the women's home lives are only ever really alluded to or glimpsed in passing because the film is only really interested in showing us the interactions between um, kind blacks and mean whites because that's where the easy dramatic money is and it's where it's where we can they can elicit the most basic human responses you know repulsion and anger and shame etc um, so it's not really a film of any subtlety. It's just a blunt object. And none of the emotions it elicits are surprising or illuminating. It's almost like comfort misery, if you see what I mean. And yeah, and it's that lack of surprise, which is just the most dispiriting thing. It, it's it's why I found the ending of 12 Years a Slave, uh, for example, um, so powerful, because 12 Years a Slave ends with an emotional beat which is totally unexpected and shocking um, and unusual. And that really like hits home. But the help is just so predictable. It, it's like clockwork with its big movie moments. Uh, it just comes across as very disingenuous and manipulative, to be honest. So it's not very good. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that is... It, it, I must admit, it's not a film I'm ever going to watch, but it's still disappointing <laughs> that it was. Uh, it's just the thing is, the reason I don't watch these films is I don't like getting upset, um, which is why I still haven't watched 12 Years a Slave. Um, but the fact that it adheres to such a formulaic structure and is, is about something that could be um, mm -hmm. educational and quite explosive and yet plays it safe, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a further reason not to watch it, really. Mm. Is it a long film? It sounds like it would be overly long um, as well. Oh, 70 minutes. <laughs> 70 minutes, 15 of those are in the titles. It might um, just trip over the boundary of two hours. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, stumble onto the other side for another a four and a half minutes. hours. Yeah. <laughs> stumble into the Tarkovskian wilderness. 
um, it's the name of a painting I'm working on. Um, just I just cover my ass in paint and just sit down on a canvas. Um, sit down on some canvas. If it was a Tarkovsky wilderness, you would you would lie down in a shallow puddle, and <laughs> gradually the camera would zoom in on you. <laughs> and a dog would be looking at me and like yeah. too too bored to even whine at my plight. Um, so <laughs> this is. Uh, <laughs> Um, I'm gonna. I'll. I'll show. I'm gonna be a little bugger then. I'm a bugger for being a bugger. Me. I'm gonna talk about my sort of only serious-ish film this week, apart from mm. my film, which is deadly serious to me. Um, and this is Super Dark Times from 2017. As I say these words, have you covered this in this podcast before? Why does that ring a bell? Mm, doesn't ring a bell. No, that's right. You should watch it because it's good. Um. It's a story set in the 90s. And yes, yes, you see someone playing with a Sega Saturn at some point. Yes. Um, set in the 90s, but three kids who live in the Midwest in America. Uh, they're all sort of mid-teens in school. All quite different people. And they, uh, the four friends go out one day playing with, the, playing with one of the elder brother's sort of swords. Um, you know those sort of ornamental swords? And... Mm-hmm. Something bad happens involving someone's throat, and then they mm. try to cover up this tragedy. And the film then explores that happens in the first sort of twenty minutes. The film is more of an exploration of how people of that age deal with grief and how very different it can be, and the the effect on your lives it can have. It all takes place within a week, and it's a very quiet sort of film. It doesn't it doesn't feel too expansive. They're all it does a very good job because I was one myself, of capturing what it's like to be kind of a horny teenage boy, where it's just all they care about is, you know, they're all sort of daring each other to smoke cigarettes and just just hanging around a town where there's nothing much to do and biking around and just talking about porn and which girls they fancy. And it's quite accurate in that depiction from my experiences (laughs) growing up in a really, like, really tiny, boring Welsh mining town. And... um. When the tragedy happens, it's really interesting how the the people involved, um, as it's covered up, just how they react if they go inwards, if they just want to ignore it and go past it. And it's a very slow exploration of that, how grief is dealt with. It's quite a grey film, but it it doesn't feel drab because it's just an autumnal kind of setting and it reflects their emotions, I suppose, their emotional states. And it's not, it doesn't have a really chipper ending and it doesn't wimp out on certain things. The only thing it does do is it claims that it was made in 2017 and it claims that the two stars are Charlie Tehan and Owen Campbell when it's very clear to me that the stars are a very young Steve Zahn and one of the blokes from The Inbetweeners. So I'm going to have to get online and sort that out with IMDb. <laughs> also, Amy Hargreaves is in this. She's not only is she a gorgeous woman, as she plays one of the, the teenagers' mothers, I swear to God, I spent a good 20 minutes just assuming it was Naomi Watts. If you go t- type in Amy Hargreaves into IMDb now. It, okay. It's astonishing. Let's do this. I, I genuinely, it's like, that's, that's Naomi Watts, that is. <laughs> Oh my god! What? Exactly. It just—I just assumed the wrong picture. (laughs) But um, no, it's one I definitely recommend because it's not—it's not too heavy duty and it's not too sentimental. And 
a lot of the film is just the main the main character we follow uh zach played by owen campbell just it, it, it paints a really good picture of when someone isn't emotionally or emotionally developed enough or mature enough to to understand the the implications of a single action and just taking the worst possible course of action to push it out of their minds and i felt like it did a really good job of capturing that Mm -hmm. um so what is called super dark times yes because that sounds quite comedic or kind of frivolous title it does. It, I must admit, now that you said that, I was thinking, it doesn't. I mean, this. It doesn't sound like it matches up with your description, which, <laughs> um, <laughs> which yeah, I, I always feel a bit of pity for films when they have like quite bad titles, but they're good films, um, or yeah, incongruous titles, I should say. The, the poster, yeah, it's Super Dark Times in a sort of scratchy mm. handwritten font. And it's a, a, a forest looked at from in a hole in the ground and three people shining torches into it. So it comes across as a possibly sort of mystical sci-fi thriller. And it's just right. not that. So, yeah, it is mistitled. I said maybe the kids said super a lot in the 90s when they were pointing at the Nintendo console. I don't know. But yeah, that, I mean, it's it's more of a kind of modern yeah, uh, bit more modern parlance, isn't it? That's super bad and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, let's let's not dwell on uh, grammar. Let's uh, let's say that's a good film. And where can we see it? Oh my god, twenty six episodes in, I keep forgetting to write these down. I'm just going to say Netflix. <laughs> okay, you've got fifty percent chance of being right. Um, all right, let's shift over to Prime then. I don't think I'm. Coming off Prime at all this episode, um, <laughs> and you didn't have a good week, you say? <laughs> it started with a film called Galaxina, which is made in 1980, um, and is just a tiresome subspaceballs science fiction farce. Um, the titular character is a saucy robot. Um, she is most interestingly, probably more interesting than the film. She was a lady. It was, her name's Dorothy something. Dorothy Stratton? Stratton? Cotton. Anyway, she was a former Playmate of the Year and she was murdered soon after this film was made by her husband mm. with a shotgun. Um, so she was only 20, so it was quite tragic. But anyway, so um, it is a dumb, yeah, Space Force type um, movie. Uh I guess it's going for like a, a kind of dark star vibe because the three main male characters, she's the robot on this spaceship and the three main male characters are kind of like sub red dwarf kind of like slackers. Um, but I, I guess because of the time it was made, what late seventies and eighties, I guess they were going for that kind of a slightly hippieish vibe. Um, but yeah, so it's going for something a bit like dark star. But it's got, maybe 10 times the budget and about a tenth of the charm to be honest um it is weirdly slow moving though for a, basically what is essentially a kind of extended episode of red dwarf a bad episode of red dwarf uh, ex, ex, you know extended red to dwarf like, from series seven and eight yeah yeah <laughs> yes um yeah so it's weirdly slow moving so you have these strangely like 
patient shots of like um, like bad special effects and stuff, um, I, combined with this smutty uh, like slacker humor on the ship. And I realized afterwards that is the reason for this is because apparently they, they couldn't shoot all the scenes they wanted to. So the film is padded out with a bunch of stuff that they'd shot, um, you know, elsewhere like second unit stuff. Um, it's really badly made. I mean, there's a scene where there's footage of Galaxina, the robot. She walked downstairs, um, but they obviously didn't have the footage of her walking downstairs, so they just reversed a shot of her walking upstairs. So she's walking backwards downstairs. That's how cheap this piece of shit is. Um, <laughs> it's just really, all the humour is really depressing you, and sexist. You know, if Steven Seagal is listening to this podcast, he's going to say... Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's just really sexist. Um, like, it will be just like real, really dated humour. Like, one person says women are like clocks. Pretty face, pretty hands, pretty movement, but hard to regulate when they're out of order. Which isn't, it's like too clunky to even like trip off the tongue anyway. And not funny when it is finally said. So... Yeah, and there's a constant sense of like the men leering um, and and like attempted sexual assault, really. And it's just treated as completely normal male behavior is a really unfunny homage to the chestburster scene from Alien, mm. much like Space Booster Bella. Um, yeah. And yeah, you you've got this captain guy whose name is Cornelius Butt. <laughs> who gets a very occasional, vaguely amusing line. Um, like, what, they visit a brothel at one point, and uh, he says to someone, oh, I've had a wonderful time. It just wasn't tonight. That So, you know, but these are kind of like one line as you get a stand-up gig, which are okay. They're not good enough to maintain a film. Um, oh, there's a couple of racial stereotypes thrown in as well. You get a jive-talking black guy. On, in the team, and also an old Chinese dude delivering proverbs. So we got that as well. We got that issue as well to deal with. Um, I think the real problem is, is that if you're going for this sort of, I know obviously they're not copying Red Dwarf, but if you're going for that kind of vibe with like lads in space sort of thing, they've got to be um, distinctive characters. And the problem here is that the three main men are just entirely interchangeable, just as bad as each other, and. There's, so there's no real like comedy conflict there because they all think and act in the same way. They're just kind of bros. And so all of the kind of action comes in them just going to seedy bars in around in space and touching up women, really. Um, it's my dad. I, in I, it, then. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say it's too generous to describe the humor as dated because I don't think it was ever funny. I don't I can't see why anyone would ever find this funny. And, you know, Spaceballs was just is silly, but at least its jokes effectively mocked the self-seriousness of sci-fi at the time. This is just cheap and smutty and lazy. So Galaxina sucks. I'm not going to watch That's that. Probably the, the sequel. That is probably on the poster, actually. Galaxina sucks. Ah! So no. funny because it's Bang! sexually... Yeah. I, do you know yeah. what? I was going to talk about something else, but now, now you said that, it's put me right in the mood to talk about Sean Ashmore and Gary Cole in 
it's was it's called Darkness Falls, not that one. It's from 2020, not 2003. But it was originally called Anderson Falls because his name is Jeff Anderson. So it's like he falls. But um, this film is... I want my notes. I've just written the word wow twice. So th- this 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 is a 2020. It's it's supposed to be a, a thriller starring Sean Ashmore. Now, I remember Sean Ashmore from the X-Men film where he played Iceman Bobby Drake. And I remember him from Quantum Break. Um, and I think he was in another video game as well that escapes me at the moment. But I'm more familiar with his like motion capture work. And I actually quite like him as an actor when I see him in things, when he's a bit part in this. The film is completely unsalvageable. And I think everyone should watch it because it's been a while since I watched a modern film of this level of ineptitude. And the script is astonishing. Astonishing. So the plot is... Ashmore, the one who looks a bit like Ryan Philippe. Yes. Yes. Um, He's also got a twin brother called Aaron Ashmore, which confuses things even further. Uh, Um, So the plot is that he plays a cop uh, and he goes home one night after work to find that his wife has supposedly committed suicide, but we know what's actually happened. Two men have come in, forced her to take a load of pills, and as she sort of slips to sleep in the bath, they've slashed her wrist. And he thinks that there are people going around doing this to multiple women and framing them as, as these sort of perfect suicides. And everyone thinks that she just killed herself, but he's determined that he's like, no, someone else has done that. She wouldn't have done it to herself. And so the film is him trying to find these two men, played by Richard Harmon and Gary Cole. Um, it's astonishing. Absolutely bewildering on almost every level. Um, it's, for a start, the, the opening sequence where they walk in, they, it's almost like, the only way I can describe it, it's like everyone in the film and involved in the crew is bored Um it's got this real sense of just boredom running through it. So wow. at the start, she's just in, she's just like cleaning her teeth or something. And she turns around and these two men are there who we find out are a father and son serial killer duo. And they just look bored. And she's like, what are you doing here? And he just says, Oh, can you take these pills? And then there's this really protracted scene of her like spitting them out and him just putting another one in her mouth. And if, and eventually it got to the point where she was like, dry swallowing them gagging i thought why doesn't he just give her a glass of water and why is he giving them to a one at a time why if i was gonna frame like someone for suicide i and he says oh if you don't take them we'll we'll kill your son and she's still spitting them out and he it's like he's like got his finger in the tub rattling the last few at the bottom because she keeps spitting (laughs) just hold her mouth open pour a load in and shut her mouth but it's like he's too bored it's like oh here we go spitting them out you so that goes on for ages and then he and then even when he kills her they just sort of stand there looking at her dying and and there's like no there's no excitement on the face it's not sexual it's just really mechanical um but don't worry because sean ashmore with his acting makes up for everyone else's seeming sort of languidness he overacts in this film rupert and it's almost like no they know the script doesn't make sense it's such a basic premise of him trying to find these two people but the way he goes about it is just astonishing there's a sequence where he he goes to visit his mother who's looking after this son obviously because uh, we know it's three months later and he's he's upset because he's grown a beard so he, t- he goes to say hello to his son and his mum played by lynn shea good uh, mm-hmm. says look this is ridiculous now you need to you need to move on you need to move on 
and I thought it's only been three months, and his his wife of like at least ten years looking at the son is dead. Like three months mm. is not really that long to move on from a spouse's death. No. And he says, "Oh, I just need some more time." And I thought, yeah, that's fair enough. And then she says, "I would have understood that two months ago, but this is ridiculous." What? <laughs> oh, she's got months. Bloody hell. Yeah. But don't worry, because later in the film, when he says to her, a further three months or six months down the line, when he is still neglecting his child and leaving it in his mother's care, he sits on a bench and says to his mother, oh, I've I've now know there are two men who've done it. I'm right. It's two men who killed it. And she literally says, oh, that changes everything. Don't forget about your son. You have to kill them. You have to kill them. I was like, what? Um the way rupert that sean ashmore finds out who who these two people are he goes to his room his old bedroom and he just puts up a load of pictures of all the women that have been killed and he writes i hate you on them then there's an awful might like as if he's losing his mind montage sequence where it just shows multiple images of him shaking his head and screaming and stuff and then he calls his old captain who arrives and he just says I know what these, I know how these murders are being done. And then mm-hmm. he just says, and he says, they come in, they make them take pills, then they slash their wrists, and then they walk out. And I thought, right. And she's, mm-hmm. she's like, this, oh, okay, how did you work that up? And he said, because I've spent two weeks thinking like them. This is a list of all the women I would kill next. We have to protect them. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem like like foolproof detective work. It somehow. doesn't seem like accurate police work, does it? And and when she says, "Well, you you've just be basically been sat in here crying for two weeks," then and you think that that's evidence, and you've just written a list of women you hate. Um, yeah, uh, uh, it's just bizarre. And even when they catch up with Gary Cole and his son, it's like they're just bored. Like they, and he, even when he's saying, "Why do you kill all these women?" He's like, oh, "I don't know." Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Let me. I'll just go and fry in my room for a bit. I'll find out why. Yeah, that, yeah. It, it's it's awful. Uh, and, and there's probably more that I'm, I'm missing, but it's constant sequences of him just leaping to these conclusions, and then it's just taken as given. Like, yeah, that's that's police. That's how it's done. Crazy. It's oh, it's so lazy. The whole film is so so lazy. And at the end of it, it's got an uncut, really bumbling one-on-one fist fight that just looks like someone happening over a camera running at an awkward angle behind a car, and they just captured it and thought, "Oh, that'll do." <laughs> There's even a bit where he waits for the other person to stand up, then throws a punch almost in slow motion and gets pushed over. Um, it does that thing in films where you know two people are fighting, yeah. and it's a fight to the death. Like his son's life is on the line. Uh, of course, there's no tension because it's such a bad film. And you know when they punch people and then the other person falls over, and instead of just like stamping on their face or just kicking them, they pick them back up to punch them again, and then and then they get overpowered. It just keeps it's terrible. But yeah, his whole police work of just like sitting outside people's houses and thinking like the killer. Oh my god, it was painful. But you should watch it. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Jesus. Um. Just going back to Galaxina quickly, the the director of photography is Dean Cundy, who went on to work, well, he'd already started working with old John Carpenter on all his 70s really? and 80s output. So that's pretty cool, but it's not still not worth watching a movie. Um, okay, well, let's move on to Castle Freak. This is, this was one I watched on Full Moon via Prime. Um, so this is a 
straight to video horror gem from 1995 uh directed by stuart gordon who is oh yes an excellent horror director stuart gordon was used in great work in what was arguably horrors downturn from the late 80s to mid 90s because he'd done he also did pit in the pendulum in 91 which is kind of forgotten as well but this one's castle freak and jeffrey coombs of course um plays a guy who discovers he's the son of some duchess and he's inherited a castle in italy so he takes his wife uh barbara crampton naturally and their blind teenage daughter to the castle to stay there they're going to stay in the castle before selling it basically um so it turns out that jeffrey jeffrey coombs his character was responsible um for he he drank and drove two years ago with his two kids in the car uh son and daughter now he crashed the car because he was drunk killed the son and blinded the daughter um so yeah the film actually does a pretty decent job of betraying a family trying to adjust to a child with a disability still so she she's a teenager just wants freedom um but they're understandably quite reluctant to allow too much and anyway so they're in this castle and then jeffrey starts hearing these terrifying wails in the catacombs and of course instantly he assumes it's his dead son (laughs) why wouldn't you in actual fact it's the son um of the uh the previous uh owner of the castle um who was imprisoned and tortured um after her husband left her so it was like the child was punished for uh, the the father's infidelity um so anyway the this is the castle freak and he breaks loose and yeah, so Jeff Jeffrey Coombs, he's he's obsessed with the memory of his son, and so he's kind I of think looking we can to call him Jeff. Resistance. We can call him Jeff. Yeah, we'll call him Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's weird this one actually because obviously with um, Stuart Gordon, you think of Reanimator and you think of like uh, From Beyond, and they're quite you know they're quite over the top and um, quite, almost comedy horrors really, but this is very serious, very intense, especially with a title like castle freak i assumed exactly. it would be like a trash yeah yeah no but it's i mean it's still got the kind of stuart gordon heightened theatrics and jeffrey coombs is sort of pretty over the top but it seems a bit more naturalistic it seems to be shot largely on location um there's a lot more naturalistic lighting even some handheld camera and the the castle freak himself is a very creepy creation um it's a it's amazing piece of physical acting um he's he's sort of this crooked shambling creature like something out of a del toro film and um and Stuart gordon quite cleverly makes us repulsed by him but he also doesn't reveal the freak's intention straight away so it's not clear whether he's meant to be an object of pity or hatred so yeah it's as much as a psychodrama is a horror really it's concerned with the this fractured family coping with loss this wife struggling to forgive and a husband grieving and uh, trying to stay off the old brown, brown cow balls. <laughs> um, <laughs> when it does kick off, when it does kick off, it is extraordinarily gory. It's disgusting. So that's good. And it's got a really snappy and efficient script. Because... Um, 
this isn't some, you know, marital breakdown built on silence and pregnant pauses. I mean, it's just these huge, massive withering arguments and loads of distrust. So that's cool. And um, and unusually, the the because of the nature of the story and how it's entwined with Jeff's story, um, the gradual reveal of what's really going on is genuinely interesting. Like the whole backstory behind the castle freak is actually interesting. Usually it's the least interesting part of these films. Oh, yeah. It's just like, I don't really care, but this one you actually do kind of care. He's invested. So, so we're invested if you like. Um, I think the final 15 minutes, maybe a little bit clunky, a little bit cheesy, but, it you know the previous 75 minutes have been so good that it doesn't matter so again this is a tier two cracker i would say i've already written it down to watch good. don't you worry about that good. um i'm the next one for me is kill chain which is a right i put this on almost as a half joke because um i was i, I have a habit of getting excited and watching loads of films and we were in the bedroom and i and uh, face of you're going to choose a film you and i said yeah in fact i'm going to choose this one and i just clicked on it kill chain starring nicholas cage thinking it would be dreadful i turn it off after five minutes but it turns out it's pretty good so <laughs> good work um i'm again i'm going to say netflix this is do you remember last week i talked about bad times at the el royale yes, and it was, it was it was quite like a bloated film and how my interest just withered as it went on because it was overly long this does a similar Tarantino-esque thing, but it's it it's like a muted Tarantino. So it's a lot of people. You've got obviously Ryan Quanton's in there, and uh, Enrico Colantoni and Nicolas Cage, and it all revolves around this hotel called Franco's, the really really rundown um, hotel in um, in some part of New York, I guess. And it shows Nicolas Cage working behind the desk of this hotel in a cool jacket, and then it shows the other people around involved in the story and how they all are either tied to the hotel or kind of wind up at it after the, the little vignettes are done with. So for instance, when we see uh, the film starts with with a, an older sniper um, having a conversation with his daughter and then he, he realizes he's actually the target for this hit and he has a, a sort of distance conversation with his protege and then when his protege leaves, he gets into a car with Ryan Quant, and it turns out to be a dodgy cop, and it leads to a, a, a tense in-car gun standoff scene, which was quite cool. Mm. And then, obviously, it, through it, this this kill chain of events, people end up at this hotel. I actually really liked it. Um, Faye re- found it boring. She just sort of just seems like... She described it as one of those films that you watch. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed it. And I don't know if it was a mix of thinking oh this is actually quite cool because it's lots of little sort of funky stories that all tie up yeah. together or if it's just i it i get flashes of why i like nicholas cage and yeah. in this in this film he does <clears throat> he doesn't go completely over the top he is a mm. uh, he's a bit of a burned out hard boozing character and it's fine and it the film never gets really silly at the end the this sort of final gunfight does just devolve into people just shooting loads and loads of bullets and seemingly not hitting anything but but i had such a good time up to that i didn't really mind yes i do like nicholas cage when i think he's at his best when he's almost not when he's completely off the leash but when he's tugging at the leash if you like like he's in an otherwise kind of quite 
sober situation or a situation which is quite um narratively confined in some other way but he is he's obviously pushing the boundaries sort of thing uh it makes he's often the most interesting thing in in the movie if you like you'll make it come alive an otherwise ordinary movie say he'll he can elevate it yeah when he wants to when he's not doing mm. it for tax reasons yeah ah. it's i do um yeah it's nice the, his beard in this is unconvincing i can't i can't hide that from you just this he's clearly supposed to be an old burned out dude with a with a ropey past that gets revealed but when you see him he's just he's clearly just dyed his hair and his beard and you think mm. <laughs> why have you dyed your beard um but no it's it's nice because mandy i did prefer mandy which was nicholas cage just yeah. going full tilt um with a chainsaw duel obviously <laughs> but with this is i liked it i think because i preferred it to bad times at el royal because it was a lot of vignettes that come together it's 90 minutes it's nothing groundbreaking but i was i was interested throughout and the dialogue was because it's a, a, a neo-noir thriller the dialogue's a bit on the nose and a bit cheesy you know people tell stories and then the story mm. you know they sit around telling cool stories of the past as they walk around someone like playing with a lighter and then that comes into play at the end of the story sort of thing you know there's little you're like yeah, oh i see yeah. what you're doing it's full of those little nods and I, I liked it it was good it was good sort of cheesy fun so what's it called again kill chain and where can we see it oh, um, oh, oh netflix 100 netflix <laughs> uh, definitely on netflix there um well let's move on then to albert pian shall we oh please we haven't watched an albert film for a while i have (laughs) (laughs) so let's let's look at some of the talent behind this this is made in 1993 it's called arcade um this is on 1993 yes 1993 you know the height of arcade popularity um anyway so (laughs) This is on Full Moon by Prime as well. So it's directed by Albert Pune. Um There are some names in the credits. Um, it's, the, it's written by David Goyer, actually, who, of course, went on to do The Blades. Oh, uh, he oh, wrote oh. The Blade series and Dark Knight stuff, um, amongst other things. I mean, uh, you know, arguably not the greatest writer, but clearly a hit factory. And... Yeah, um, or oh, young Seth Green is in there as well. It's a teenager. Um, that man gets on my Gary. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, the there is the music is by Alan Howarth, who was a frequent collaborator with Yes, John Carpenter. Uh, but the music's awful, so it's not worth. Uh, hmm. Anyway, so really reaching for qualities here. So well, you just said that the, uh, I'm assuming there's some arcades in here because Cadillacs and Dinosaurs was released in 1993. So is there anyone playing that? Not as far as I remember specifically. There's only oh, one okay. scene in an arcade. It really isn't very arcadey, this film. So basically, um, this teenage girl, her mum has blown her brains out, basically, and she's struggling, <laughs> grades are failing. And she they, she and her friends go to this club called Dante's Inferno to try out the latest in video game tech, which is, of course, VR. And... They like they have a go at it, and it is like, early polygon graphics. It looks like looks like a PS One tech demo. It's amazing. It looks I'm, a bit like nightmare or something. Like you have like old stone walls and spikes on uh, coming out of stuff, and 
Anyway, I'm this... guessing no one has got glasses on, so they're like, "Yeah, let's try this out, dude." And then the the, the person operating the the, the <laughs> art system says, "Oh, you have to take your glasses off because they won't fit." So then they put it on, and everything's just blurry, and they're like, "Oh, this is kind of crap, actually." So does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, I think that must be deleted scene. <laughs> Probably thought this is a bit of a digression here, actually. Um, uh, so anyway, so yeah, it's you got to try this thing, and they're you know they're saying, and so the person, this dude, right? This yuppie twat who's like showing these kids this new technology. He then says afterwards, like one of them try it. They feel them try it. And it's like, uh, you know, they, you know, they get killed by the thing in the game, but they come out and they say, that's awesome. So he says, oh, right. Well, if you like that, well, I'm going to go and to my van or whatever and give you all a free home version of this VR kit. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And they just go and like take them off him. There's no questions asked. Anyway, I mean, these are and these are 17, 18 year old kids. I mean, they're not kid kids. So anyway, yeah. so they take him home. And of course, as soon as they plug him in, they start weird stuff starts happening. Um, one of them gets like sucked into the machine. Um, and there's some evil dude in the game that keeps taunting some of the others. Um and another friend that is completely transfixed by the screen and she starts saying things like, can you see the angels? I mean, part of the problem with this film is, the many problems with this film, but the part of the problem is, is that the actual power of the arcade isn't that clear because it's like you've got one person getting completely sucked into it. You've got one person just being entranced and you've got the main character who seems to be able to go in and come out at will. So it's like, well, what is its power exactly? It's not clear. Um, so anyway, but essentially what it comes down to is building up to is that the the main girl, she has to enter this uh, virtual world, work her way up through the levels in order to save her friend. So fine. OK, so that's that. Um, there are a lot of questions about the plot logic in this film, for example, for example, when they when they go around to their friend's house to warn her of this machine and its powers, they go in, they find her like in a trance, and then the machine literally kills her there and then, kills her in front of them. Instead of instead of going to the police straight away, you know, <laughs> they they say, Oh no, we we can't go to the police because they'll think we did it. We killed her. Why? Why would they think that? And so instead they go to the actual like headquarters that make the the game so they can speak to a programmer in order to get the secrets so that they can go in and save their other friend before he dies that's their idea anyway so it all gets a bit ready player one at that point because they get this map and you've got to get certain keys from inside the thing so they really the last half hour is sort of in the game itself and it's just so shoddy like <laughs> some of the, like some of the like Okay, you got dated polygon graphics. I could kind of handle that. But then other bits, they don't even bother with graphics. They just have like an abandoned industrial estate with like some super imposed like storm clouds in the background and stuff. And yeah, the lighting's all wrong. The art design is all wrong. It's just terrible. And it it takes about an hour before they actually get to any of this. Um, When really it should have been the whole movie should have been that part of it. You know, the I'm already I'm already writing this down. It's incredible there so it's really kind of dumb and juvenile but at the same time it's like really violent and is they're constantly swearing and dropping f-bombs so it's not for kids plus there's all these themes of suicide and child murder um 
you got really ropey like mor 90s rock on the soundtrack completely unknown generic bands albert pian and that this is where, where the real issue lies albert pian is a terrible director he cannot manage to direct just two people having a conversation without putting in some distracting character movement or some weird blocking and it's like what are you doing stop it even though some of his later films are literally just two people having a conversation endlessly yeah um so yeah and like you two be have like two people talking in a bedroom one of them will just randomly go to a window and suddenly they'll be talking back to back it's what <laughs> what are you doing almost every shot is awkwardly framed with a character filling just a bit too much of the frame and or, or there'll be an object meaninglessly obscuring the foreground it's, it's stop it so and this got me thinking about um of all people gareth evans actually you know the guy who did the raid and apostle yeah. in that right because yeah. the story goes that gareth evans was working in a cardiff call center and he before he, he he basically followed his calling and quit his job moved to jakarta to direct martial arts movies so he kind of followed his dream right it's probably a bit more to the story than that but still that's the story and i i kind of think of it with albert peon it's kind of the opposite like he has been churning out terrible terrible films for decades he's still doing it and there should have been a moment in his life when he realized that filmmaking was not his calling, is not his dream, and he should go and quit and work in a call center. In Cardiff. In Cardiff. Go and work for PT. Yeah, Karin. <laughs> is it? I'm assuming it's like 75 minutes, is it? Uh, it felt like my life <laughs> completely extinguished <laughs> in slow motion watching this film, but Bloody no, hell. it's like to be fair, it didn't feel that long because it's just uh, you just can't believe what you're seeing and every because because every scene makes no sense. It's it's got that kind of like car crash quality to it. That sounds amazing, and I have to watch. It. I haven't watched an Albert Pian film for a long time, but me think about it, Cyborg w- wasn't that good, and that's his <laughs> highlight. Yeah, and, and they, then ever- there are no good ones. Uh, Doll Man was okay. <laughs> when- <laughs> when we watched Nemesis More, the Angel, Nemesis for the Angel of Fists, or whatever the subtitle was, it was bafflingly bad. Like it, it's just like people are just running around with a camera on an industrial estate, always an industrial estate, possibly in <laughs> Romania. Uh, yeah, I, I will watch that because at least it was nineties. There's a bit, a bit of bad tech in there. I can cope with that, but like yeah. the, his later films are just constant talking. And that one, what was it called? Interstellar Interstellar Civil War, which is the worst film I've ever seen. The yeah. worst film I have ever seen. Yeah, it's bad, isn't it? You know, and the thing is, what's weird is I know that there are people out there who watch bad films specifically to sort of laugh at them. <laughs> Maybe I've done that. With those films, they're so, they're quite like... Um, boring? Boring and a little bit dispiriting to watch. Where yeah. you think, like, there's not even any, there's no, it's not like Ed Wood... Or Endgame, where they're obviously trying and reusing footage, and it's it's amusing and entertaining. It's just flat and boring and a bit depressing. Yep. A film that isn't flat, boring, and a bit depressing is 2019's The Furies, directed by Tony D'Aquino, starring Ailey Dodds of Neighbours fame. Um, this was a film that I put on is is on Amazon Prime, and I w- was very impressed by it when I watched it last night. It's 
a film uh, that starts off with uh, two young girls pl- sort of just graffitiing in a subway tunnel. It's a full Australian cast. I think it's um, Tony Dakina's Australian. And they get kidnapped and you get flashes of some sort of weird surgery happening. And they wake up in boxes in a really dry, dead forest, seemingly in the, in the Australian outback. And they find out that they are being hunted by buzzing men wearing foul masks and in some occasions skin suits and it's very it's very much just why are they being hunted why are they there what is happening and it is a film that is not shy when it comes to gore so this is definitely one for the horror hounds out there because i didn't know what to expect and the first kill is it's all practical effects as well which was right up my street the first kill is a woman having a, a full-size axe jammed through her cheek and then having her face sort of flipped off. And it's just it's really Blimey. unrelentingly filmed. Uh, and, of course, it's mostly practical effects. And it just got, gets on from there, really. It's just them hiding and trying to go what the hell is going on and these people going after them. It does not expand beyond that, which is much to the film's strength, because... We never get bogged down by any stupid background information. It's very much about the kills and the panic, the absolute panic that these young women are going through as they're being, they're clearly just out of the depth being hunted by these monsters. The monsters designs, the beasts in the film are really full on. And you get that Mm. when you know there's a certain amount of them, you look forward to seeing them uh, because they're so well designed. And yeah, it's just a nasty because it's in Australia as well. It's just hot. They are parched. At not <laughs> one point in this film does no one have a massive glug of iron brew. Let me tell you, they are parched. Um, so yeah, it's just basically women just uh, just in this unthinkable situation, just panicking and hoping they can stay alive long enough to work out what's going on. And I highly recommend it. What's it called again? The Furies. The Furies. When was it made? Twenty nineteen. Hmm. Do do you remember where this was? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say <laughs> I am going to let me just let me let me just look at my notes where I've written this down because I'm so used to this now. Oh, yes, here they are. That was on Amazon Prime. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, also on Amazon Prime via Full Moon channel. I obviously plundered Full Moon while I had the free trial. Uh, is a film called Fit to Kill from 1992. Um, <laughs> the golden era of those films. This is quite incredible. Um, so it is really... Okay, the basic plot is that this guy and his goons are trying to steal this expensive diamond called the Alexa Diamond and this agency, which is largely populated by beach models for some reason um are there they are gonna they need to protect the diamond and ultimately retrieve it there are various convolutions on top of this but that is more because the writer director guy is incapable of directing sustained set pieces so most of the runtime is just filled with flirtatious conversations so this starts out with a training ground um kind of shootout paintball shootout and so it's in a massive stretch of desert, right, in the middle of nowhere. And the officer calls 
the people back with a megaphone afterwards. It's ridiculous. So it just gets more silly from there on. It's just an endless parade of like California beach bods, really. Um, <laughs> like like proper 90s models, ultra skinny, massive fake boobs. Um, it's like looking at the cast of Selling Sunset or something, stroking gun barrels seductively, softcore sex scenes, so many softcore sex scenes. Um, does Gary Daniels pop up looking at a woman in a mirror while he polishes a shotgun with his eyes wide? <laughs> if only. Mm. Uh, there's a woman back at the base who literally does her job topless in a jacuzzi. That's amazing. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Well, Anytime a woman, a woman changes, <laughs> we get a montage and it's leering to the point of discomfort. It really is. Um, so any communication between men and women in this film is just deeply suggestive and flirtatious. Like, like every conversation at one point, she, this woman says, do you have the goods? Like, meaning she's going to buy something off him or whatever. And he says, I was born with them. So I don't even know what he's saying there, because he's either saying that he was born with expensive military hardware or he was born with fully developed genitalia, which is weird either way. So, <laughs> yeah, and I didn't. I, there are so many characters and they're constantly just distracting each other with sex scenes or ad hoc photo shoots. I had no idea who most people were most of the time, but it doesn't really matter. Um, I'm watching this. I'm watching this. <laughs> um, it, and like it put, manages to put together so many different couples in the film who are actually having sex. There's one point where someone, he can't have sex with the person, so he just dreams of having sex with them. <laughs> one of the characters is called Blue Steel and she goes to assassinate this rich guy this rich hunk she she goes up to him in this vegas hotel and shoots him in the back shoots him in the back right turns out he's got a flak jacket on so he gets up and just invites her to dinner of course they have sex later. um <laughs> and then after that he dreams about having sex with her. hang on her name is blue steel is that a given name do you see a passport close up at any point because I, I don't believe that i'm not sure that was her birth name somehow um some of the um locations are quite nice you've got some nice Vegas and Hawaii second unit footage, but um, there isn't much really to go on here. There's there's a scene, there's a party scene where it's meant to be a really classy party, like all kind of suited and booted. And the, it's a party scene where this woman is like singing, like she's the main singer on the stage with a band and she's singing out of tune. She is singing out of tune and there's a live band behind her, but the actual instrumentation is just synth. It's not, they're not live instruments. It's amazing. There's a bit where a slender woman in a ball gown headbutts a man so hard it knocks him out instantly. And there isn't a mark on her face. It's incredible. Oh, and there's, there's this dual hitmen called Evil and Knievel who are the thickest men who've ever lived. Uh, <laughs> they end up blowing themselves up with a remote control car. Um, <laughs> oh, there's just... There's even a there's, there's even a scene where they where someone's explaining the relevance of this Alexa Diamond, this this kind of MacGuffin that the film's all about, really. And so he's explaining the relevance, or he's explaining the backstory of it. And we get it cuts to a load of like stock footage from World War Two, and this, but then um kind of intercut with this reconstruction of a Nazi general obtaining the diamond from this like burnt down museum. The building is clearly built in the 1960s. It's like not a building from that era. It's like it's a later building. It's not the same architecture. Uh, it's amazing. There isn't enough action for it to be really good, but um, yeah, it's it's just incredible. The final fight is two remote control helicopters fighting. 
so 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 <laughs> Mission Impossible, if you like. So many of um, Andy Sidaris, the director of that film, so many of his films, like Lethal Ladies Return to Savage Beach, <laughs> Day of the Warrior, Fit to Kill, Hard Hunted, Do or Die, Guns, Savage Beach, Picasso Trigger, Malibu Express, Seven, not that one. All of the films are just two women on the cover standing by a bloke. I, I have, we have to watch his entire filmography. Picasso what? Trigger, that's an amazing film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that is amazing. What a discovery that is, Rupert. We're going to have to watch a load of Andy Sidaris' stuff. He sadly passed away now. Yeah. But, uh, oh, it's amazing. This really cheered me up, that is. Um, I, you know, I don't think I can top that. That is, that's a golden discovery. It just sounds amazing. It's, it's... It's not as good as one of the. I've got a couple left after this, and yeah, there's an even better one coming your way. Don't worry. Okay, well, I'm gonna go on to. I'm gonna lead up to my um, my film of the week after this because it there's 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 a theme. Um, so this this last one before I go on to my my horror theme is a Korean film obs called Time to Hunt. Um, let me get some information up here. Um, which I watched. Oh, sorry, no, I'll edit this out. Let me get it up. I was so excited then when you were talking about um, that film. I just completely didn't prep the next bit. Right. Yeah, so the next film we're going to talk about is Time to Hunt, which is a 2020 South Korean dystopian uh, action film about four boys, one of whom uh, has just got out of prison. And they're in the, it, they, the place they're in is awful. It's a load of just graffiti, dusty buildings. No one's got any jobs. There's one part of the film where... One of them says, "Oh, why don't we just go to the bank and change all of our all of our money into dollars and just go somewhere else?" And then they say, "Oh, it's changing money is now illegal." You think, "Bloody hell!" <laughs> go into a, if you can get shot on site for going to a bureau de change, you know that the country's <laughs> gone to shit. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's just these four guys, and they decide that the only way out of this predicament, where they, you don't know what's happened to put the country in such disarray, but it really does seem hopeless and empty and skeletal. And one of them, there's often talk between them about that. Um, ill parents or family members that just they can't afford hospital expenses so they're basically just dying at home and of course, dipping of, into your overdraft is illegal naturally <laughs> yeah looking at your bank account means you have to get your eyes shot out so uh, yeah they can't even do they can't even log into the lloyd's banking app um <laughs> one of them if you try to go on the wonga website your hands melt so there's no there's no way out fiscally of this whole situation and they <laughs> yeah. decide that the only thing they can do is to even if you look in your peggy bank some peggy piggy bank someone just shoots you up the ass <laughs> you got nothing if you open your cutlery drawer to melt it down and make fake coins and try and sell those someone cuts your head off you can't do anything yeah. um, it's a oppressive time you'd also in those situations have to have someone following you at all times as well so when you like someone from the military so every time you like go to open the cutlery drawer they're like da, 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 da. every time you go to look at your piggy bank as you walk past da, 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 da. okay so it's, it's quite an expensive and petty form of authoritarianism really, isn't it? <laughs> um, so one of them decides the only way out of this predicament <clears throat> is to uh, rob a local casino because the thinking is they, they know a bloke who's got some guns if they go in there rob this casino which is run by sort of they think low-level gangsters they won't tell the police because the the gambling den is illegal anyway 
<laughs> because apparently holding money is illegal. And so they can then make their escape and they, they've got this uh, idea of just getting a, an illegal boat and getting smuggled across to Taiwan, which they, they seem to think is exactly the same as Hawaii. Not sure if it is. Um, so the, the whole plot is they go there, they rob this, they rob this casino, they get the money, they go to Taiwan. They don't get chased because it's illegal money, so why would they get the police involved and everyone's happy, Bob's your uncle. That is not what happens. What happens is the the, the initial setup and robbery goes goes well, but they, through their actions, because they're kind of amateurs of the whole thing, they get tracked down by this, this mysterious hitman called Han, who seems almost Terminator-like in his determination to track them down and kill them. And it's a really interesting film because the whole th- there is action in it, and there are uh, pretty well staged gunfights. Cinematography is gorgeous. It's just the first half mm. of the film is is just this ruined cityscape, and then the latter half of the film, when the sort of chase sequences kick off, and it becomes more of a road trip movie of them trying to get yeah. away and get to this the docks, is very. It's all sort of through the nighttime, and it's it's sort of um, stark and beautifully lit and foggy and really tasty. The, the film is more about them dealing with the implications of what they've done and just just an absolute sense of panic and not being able to not being able to deal with their actions and what understand if they can get away or not or understand the gravity of the situation until it's too late um the characters are all really well defined and all have different different motives the the four friends and it's only really let down by the music school as well only really let down by the end the end 15 minutes and it it was a definite end point and then the screen faded back in and it just added like another 12 minutes that really didn't want to be there and kind of lowered the Mm. film a little bit and it's a bit of a shame it appears to be setting itself up for a sequel that really really doesn't need to happen oh it's always dispiriting yeah and it's it it is a real shame. Uh, it's a long film, but I, I feel like it needs to be long because it, it, you, it really sets in. It's a lot of awkward conversations when they're driving and panicking, and you need you felt like it needed to be that long so you it, you can really settle in with just how dismal their lives and situation is. And that said, it's not a depressing film. I wasn't I wasn't sort of when it finished. I didn't feel a bit beaten down emotionally by it, but I was really engaged throughout. But like I said, the last 10, 15 minutes. Whoops, a daisy. That's a pity, isn't it? Does it? Did it feel like a kind of tacked-on bit at the end? It it did. It really did. Yeah. Mm. That's disappointing, isn't it? I need to get. What's it called again? Time to hunt. I need to get on the South Korea bus. Don't know. I've literally not seen a bad film that's come to me from <laughs> South Korea. I, I presume that's because, I mean, a certain quality gets through, so to speak. But that's fine. It's not a problem. Oh. If you say quality... that, but I've just this film is directed by Albert Pian as well. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that. Imagine you just moved to South Korea and suddenly became talented. <laughs> I noticed you said became talented and didn't say recaptured his talent. <laughs> um, right. Hack O'Lantern. Oh my god, come on! So we've gone from names with like question marks and exclamation marks in them to just puns now. Yeah, yeah. This is on Prime. Prime. This is on Shudder via Prime. Um, And it's uh, a horror movie from 1988. Irrelevantly set in 1981. Um, So this grandpa, this old dude, comes to visit young Tommy, 
on Halloween in 1968. Now, Tommy's parents hate Grandpa, so Dad confronts him, confronts Grandpa in the middle of Grandpa doing a satanic ritual. Dad is killed. 13 years later, Grandpa is still visiting Tommy on Halloween. Um, and this time he actually invites Tommy to one of his satanic ritual ceremonies. Bear in mind, right, that when we first saw Tommy in 1968, he was maybe 10. Uh, so this guy is meant to be, the Tommy now is meant to be like 23. He looks about 45. It's ridiculous. It just does not look like a 23-year-old. Anyway, um, so Tommy's mum warns Grandpa off because, because his grandpa, right, he used to sexually abuse her. She knows that he killed her husband all those years ago. And so, but she's still just like, oh, can you go away, please? It's like, yeah. I'm assuming cool, he emits all of this from his CV under hobbies and interests. <laughs> just being, this is face, says it all really. He's so creepy. Um, and um, by the way, not only that, he, he openly flirts with his own granddaughter who just laughs it off. Like Tommy's sister, he just laughs. She just laughs off. <laughs> it's just grandpa being grandpa. He's <laughs> just the man who murdered my father and sexually abused my mother. <laughs> Trying to do the same to me. <laughs> what a new Grooming <laughs> me for the same fate. Um, so, <laughs> adult Tommy, <laughs> adult Tommy, he puts on his headphones, right? This is quite an early scene. He puts on headphones and he is transported into a poodle rock music video he suddenly has enormous hair and he's playing with this terrible band and there's smoke everywhere and there's this exotic tribes woman shooting lasers from her eyes and he imagines being beheaded with a trident at the end of this so that's really awkward beheaded with a trident yeah it's like like, like, just jams it in there and it comes off anyway so Tommy has a, um, a sister, as I mentioned. She's very fun-loving, um, like teenager. He has a brother as well who's very sensible and preppy. Now, both of these are understandably concerned about Tommy because he's obviously a bit loopy. Um, and they all know that Grandpa's into satanic rituals and um, they don't seem to really mind too much. Anyway, so basically, the, really, the film is about these blood-drinking satanists going around town murdering people. Um and some of the kills are okay. Uh, there's a garden fork to the throat. There's a spade through the head, but there isn't. There aren't enough of them to for a film as derivative as this. It's it's, it's just weirdly written film. It's got some strange ideas in it. There's like this really gentle, sober Halloween party where it just has this sudden like full body stripper at it, and it's like what's well, just out of place. It's weird. Everyone at the party, by the way, at that party, just looks like they've turned up on set and are waiting for the cameras to roll. They haven't been told what to do. Certainly haven't been told to have any fun, that's for sure. And there are about, and there, are, there must be no more than 20 guests at this party, like 20 guests, and they have a full rock band with complete setup there playing live. Um, and there's... And there's also another thing about this party scene is that outside the party, it cuts to outside, right? And there's this hitherto unseen character who you don't see again. And he suddenly goes into this five minute stand up comedy skit. It's really, really weird. I'm guessing he's a real comic and maybe he was a friend or something and they just wanted to get give him a bit of a skit on there. It's completely unfunny and really gentle, but it's like it's so weird because it doesn't have anything to do with anything else. It's just clearly 
a, a stand-up comic just trying out material. Anyway, um, it's just the character motivations are completely baffling throughout this. Um, like, like this, this, there's this bit where the sister discovers a dead body, and she confronts the cult, who try to ritually sacrifice her there and then, and she says to her friend. Oh, we have to find Roger. We have to get out of here. But what? what call the police. Stop it. Stop it. Your brother is a policeman. Go and go and speak to your brother who is a policeman. It's it's another film where people just do nonsensical things, react nonsensically to obvious mortal danger. Um, no one reacts like human beings. And the dialogue is really forced and stilted. And their performances are appalling from every single person in the film. Um, and it's one of those films where like all the events have been grounded in the real world. And then there's a supernatural twist in the last five minutes. Oh, uh, so that's that. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know whether it's trying to be funny, like, but it doesn't meet any kind of balance between horror and comedy and it has no atmosphere whatsoever. So that is called hack. O lantern. And it's made in 1998, and it's crap. I'll write it. 1998. Yes. Oh, such, that was like the dearth, wasn't it? That was yeah, the, the dearth of horror. Um, I've written it down anyway. I mean, it's <laughs> 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 getting crazy. Um, but well, now we come on to um, we come on to the films I watched leading up leading up to the the, the true gold. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Insidious Chapter Two. Um, and this these films the conjuring and insidious and so on i i feel like they're all one film in my mind i i don't i can't really separate them so what happened was i, I specifically sat down to watch these films to separate them in my head um and obviously i start with a second film because <laughs> um, i I did remember the first one. So in this film, it starts our boy Pat, uh, Patrick Wilson, who I fancy more than Rose Byrne, quite frankly, and definitely more than Lynn Shea, but not as much as Barbara Hershey. Um, and it starts off with the end of the first film, obviously, Patrick Wilson goes into the dark and gets taken over by this demon and has he brought it into the real world uh, to haunt his family? Yes, yes, he has. Um, so it starts off with Patrick Wilson and his family, his wife, Clipper Roseburn, and two kids moving back to, because the house is haunted to shit and back, quite frankly, moving back to his childhood home with his mother to, to sort of get things straight. And it becomes very clear that this force from the dark has followed them uh, and they need help. Help doesn't come in the form of Lynn Shea because she's granary bread. She's right said bread. She's drop dead Fred. Um, she's half and half bread. <laughs> she's gluten free bread. Uh, oh, so she's, she's not alive. No, she's uh, she she is in that place which lies beyond life. <laughs> Death, <laughs> the dark, <laughs> Death. and um, so they instead meet up with her friend Carl, uh, who <sighs> Carl, right? The guy in this film, the old the old wise man who understands the dark and so on. Yeah. Is that J.K. Simmons? No, 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 yeah. no. That you're thinking of that film where he's in a he's a psychic who was in a hut. Yeah. On Is a, that Dead on a uh, Yes, yes, I think it might yeah. be. Yeah. 
Uh, yes, Oof. that was a he was an odd choice of person for that. Insidious um, Two is actually fairly fresh in my mind because I think we did cover it in October because obviously amongst with all the other horror films, so this is quite did, fresh. Did you realize? Did you point out in that episode that Steve Coulter, who plays Carl, who basically replaces Lynch's uh, all-knowing the dark character in this film, is wearing a fake beard that has been crimped. <laughs> I don't think that was that wasn't my notes. <laughs> um, it's astonishing. So, yeah, the film goes on and on. And the one thing I took away from this film is the sound design is just clanging, screaming, and mm. it's just at at max volume. It's it goes from just like sort of these quiet creaking floorboards and you're seeing something in the background you think oh that's cool and then it'll just be a massive badly timed jump scare but yeah. you'll 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 wince more than jump because the sound design is just a cavern it's just this piercing screech mm-hmm. that never mm-hmm. stops mm-hmm. the whole film is like it to the point that when it finished i just i i almost um you know film finishes when you go to a gig and you walk outside and you've got that kind of yeah, yeah. Almost like that. Just, I was just constantly fiddling with the remote control throughout, and trying to get the, you know, it's like, oh, I'll put it on. I mean, I've got a nice sound bar, so it's like, okay, I'll put on voices mode and turn it down a bit, so I at least understand what's going on. Oh, but now, now I can't hear all the little creepy sounds. So I'll turn that up. Oh, hang on, now there's a screeching, distorted violin. Back down, I go. It was constant, and it was irritating. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I, I literally, I wrote in my notes at the time. It's literally all jump scares, bad ones as well. There's yeah. just there's not a single scary moment in the entire film. It's and just... I also said at least the first film had the creepy red dude because this doesn't even have that. No, <clears throat> no, not at all. It's just Patrick Wilson looking a bit peaky under the eyes, which isn't quite as scary. <laughs> um, yeah, and of all the films I'm going to talk about, this is the second worst of these. This last little run. Um. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think we're both in agreement. Though. I think we've had a very similar experience with Insidious 2. It's crap. And it's <laughs> watching. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've only got one more to go. I, I mean, I could push it to another one after that, but I really need to talk about a film called Dark Breed. Oh, okay. Um, which is on Prime. PM <laughs> Entertainment. Oh! Directed by none other than Richard Pepin. The P oh in PM Entertainment, directed in 1996, and it is brilliant. So good. So, <laughs> so a bunch of astronauts on this top secret mission return to Earth, and they've been exposed to a space virus. So they return to Earth, and they're kind of possessed, basically, and they start causing havoc in LA, naturally, um, as they attempt to get hold of this canister containing these alien eggs which is the key to their survival and their proliferation of course naturally the egg canister lands in a deserted industrial estate so that's where 90% of the action takes place good um now bear in mind right this bunch of astronauts so they these aliens look like the astronauts they are the astronauts for um better or worse um and so naturally the best person to deal with this they thought would be someone who is best friends with one of the astronauts and an ex-husband of another of the astronauts. And this is the best person to deal with this and kill these people. Okay, good. We got that out of the way. It's a ridiculous way of injecting personal snakes. Um, he, the person is 
someone called Jack Scalia. He is he was in Dallas. So um, he's helped by an overweight man and a woman who seems to have a reconstructed nose. It's sort of like a really trashy version of Blade Runner where they're going around. It's a middle aged dude hunting down rampaging subhuman automations. But there's also a little bit of alien because there's this company that sent the astronauts to get infected sort of thing. Um, so really, Pepin is ransacking Ridley Scott's early career, essentially. Um, in the end, um, when the aliens kind of mature into actual kind of alien creatures, you get an, even get a knockoff predator. So that's good. And not only that, but the predator makes the sounds. Um, it's it's loaded with like samples from Doom from 1993, the game. Amazing. That's fantastic. Brilliant. It, like several samples from that game. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit confusing exactly the laws of the aliens because sometimes when the aliens are, con uh, are in possession of these human hosts it gives them different color eyes but sometimes it doesn't sometimes the humans have complete control sometimes they don't so it's a bit confusing but we're just here for the action sequences really aren't we and it is like many a pm entertainment film it is front loaded with a really elaborate action scene at the start with loads of explosions car crashes and, and some pretty awesome jump uh, stunts actually like um this guy jumping from a helicopter onto the top of a moving truck that's pretty cool so yeah it comes uh, there's a lot of lot of action comes thick and fast there's never more than like five minutes without a stupid fight or an alien murder there's a legitimately great car chase as well where the hero is being they're driving a van and the hero is being dragged along on a an upturned satellite dish attached to a steel cable like swinging around behind um so that's pretty cool there's a really weird proliferation of bazookas in the film like everyone seems to have a bazooka i'm not sure why that is it's almost like they wanted to just blow up as many cars and abandoned buildings as possible i don't know <laughs> just put it out there there are actually some decent, like, in terms of, like, direction, it, it's quite decent long tracking shots, like some good steady cam work. Um, so it doesn't have that thing you get with quite a lot of, like, low-budget um, movie making where it can feel quite static. It's, it's quite yeah. a mobile-feeling film, and it's, and it's quite intriguingly lit like a horror movie and mostly set at night, so that's all good. Um, and there's a f no one really famous in it, but there's a few familiar faces. There's the... Um, the black yuppie dude from robocop um and there is jonathan banks who is from you know from beverly hills cop and 48 hours um so yeah it, it's it's brilliant and it's it's probably the best pm entertainment film i've seen and i can't believe it's not better known to be honest you, you chuck arnie and something like this and albeit in the 80s then we'd be talking about it as a trash action classic but it would have to be by 80 standards. I think 1986, <laughs> maybe maybe not so much. But yeah, if this had been released 10 years earlier, my God, it would be it'd be the commando of, well, 1986. I'm clearly going to watch this because with the aliens, it sounds a little bit like, um, what was that film from 1990 with Dolph Lundgren, Dark something? <sighs> Dark Angel. Um, yeah, it just... It, it, was, it sounds like it's just taken a lot from other films and chucked it in. Good, good, good. Oh, yeah. this, the Doom Sound samples. This, I'm just thinking, we've often tried to, we've often talked about how, if you think about films like that and Drive with Mark Dacascus, which was 1997, 
it's almost like that's the tipping point, isn't it? Before late nineties, before it turns into that film with Casper Van Dienen, whatever it was called. Um, where it's that ripoff of, um, American Psycho, where it's just, it's nothing. And it turns into industrial estates, the entire, the entire sort of, um, landscape of American home video just turned into Romanian industrial estates in the early oh, 2000s. I mean, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's an industrial, good amount of industrial estates in this, but at least it has some ideas. Like several industrial estates. Like it, it the whole thing about the, them being possessed by aliens. I mean, it does mix it up a bit because it's like sometimes they do regain control and they're not completely possessed, um, which does bring in a new element of like, okay, or well, how do we deal with this? So should we try and just kill ourselves so that you know to stop this? So there is a bit of that. So it's yeah, it has some ideas in it. It's never boring and. Yeah, it absolutely flies by. I just and, noticed uh, uh, on on the. I just looked at. Sorry, it's on the. Um, I just looked on my phone, Dark Breed, because I'm clearly going to watch this. And bizarrely, it says Dark Breed, IMDb 1996, released in 1996, released in Finland in December 2003. <laughs> so I don't know. They were really holding it back for the Finn massive. Um, four out of only 557 reviews and four out of ten on IMDb, which seems bizarre because this sounds like a lost action classic. Oh yeah, I mean it's preposterous, but I mean it's like the action scenes are genuinely well done. You know, like when you watch Maniac Cop two and three, and they're just not horror films; they're just action movies. But they're really good because they've got awesome stunts in them and just yeah. relentless action scene. It's like that. It's like one of them. It's like this is what I'm here for: a silly plot, some over the top acting some decent gore and some good action scenes maybe it's because it's got that sci-fi element it hasn't it isn't grounded in the same way that a lot of pm entertainment output is you know because <laughs> it's so grounded in reality it's just so gritty usually but um yeah so yeah dark breed but you know it's you know in the same way that dead heat so successfully melded genres and um dark breed does the same melded the talents of Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo. Joe Piscopo spends the whole film looking at the lighting rig for the film. <laughs> at one point, don't they just say, right, just go just go away? Like, he just says, are you going to do that? I'll do this. Just to get him out of the film. And, and I'm pretty looking up even as he walks off. Yeah. <laughs> he just disappears from the film. Brilliant. <laughs> the film that, for me, has been a sexual awakening and realized for me that i completely misunderstood it when i first watched it and it is clearly one of my favorite films now not my favorite horror film but just a film is sinister from 2012 starring ethan hawk i I, jumper film yes the cardigan movie this is the thing right when i first watched this this is going to be a little bit spoiler tastic by the way so skip ahead to sinister 2 (laughs) after this if you're interested in watching it so yeah, when I first watched this film, uh, so yeah, I'll talk about the plot first. The plot is effectively uh, Ethan Hawke plays a character called Ellison Oswalt. Yes, Patton Oswalt and Harlan Ellison, um, who moves, is a true crime writer who's moved into this neighborhood where uh, a family has been killed and the daughter is missing, presumed dead. And he moves into this neighborhood with his family and he used to be a famous author. He's running out of cash, supposedly. And he is there to have another big hit because his last big book, Kentucky Blood, is 10 years ago. And his wife is kind of, mm, maybe you should get another job. <laughs> Isn't this one like, of those films where the husband drives his family to the place and they move in that day, and but the family have never seen it before? 
Similar? No, no, but it does something even better than that, which I'll get to. It literally tops that, that classic trope. Um, so when I watched this, so that's the film, and then he finds this footage that shows the murder of the family, and he gets more and more involved in in the killings as the film goes on. That's the plot. When I first watched this, I think I watched it at the same time as um, Insidious, The Conjuring, all those other films, and I think it just got blended in my head. And I've always just looked back at Sinister as, oh, it's that bloody film where he wears the same cardigan for two weeks, <laughs> and you know, and and it's just like a horror film, boom, like completely standard. Yeah. When I watched it the other day, I was, I don't know if it was me in the zone or me, just not so much being open-minded, but just trying to in, because I suppose since 2012 and now Ethan Hawke has been in some of my favorite films like Predestination, um, you know, where you realize he's actually like a very, very good actor. And I think I went into this film with a mindset at the time. It's just a little bit dismissive that it's a bit of a horror, probably had a few drinks, checked it on when a few people around that kind of thing. So I've literally got a breakdown here of why this film is solid gold. And I realize everyone, all the actors in it are perfect at their parts. So you've got Ethan Hawke has got two children, uh, one of whom is a boy with luxurious hair and a daughter. And they pop up in the film every now and again, but they, they're mainly used um, for specific scenes as opposed to sort of rambling around the house. Mm. You've got his wife who, who he has a really believable relationship with. And there, there's one key scene when they argue, they, the the daughter's drawn something weird on the wall and they slam the door and they have this argument in the bedroom and it's so naturalistic. And and because this, oh, Ethan Hawke is such a good actor, it's exactly as you can imagine an argument would be in that ridiculous situations involving hauntings and demon, demonic spirits because they're kind of censoring the F words and like hushing their voices when they say particularly harsh things. And there's a lot of pauses where they're trying to think of what to say next. And it's just really naturalistic and tasty. Then you've got the sheriff of the town who just wants him out, only rocks up in two scenes, makes a good part. You've got a deputy that Ethan Hawke uses almost just as a way to get information from the sheriff's department because no one wants him in the town. But the deputy ends up, uh, um, although Ethan Hawke kind of lords his intellectual superiority over him, mm. the de- this sort of dopey deputy ends up solving the case, admittedly too late. And then you've got a cameo by Vincent D'Onofrio playing uh, an expert on this specific part of the occult, this bagul, this character that haunts Ethan Hawke throughout the film. And I didn't notice it when I first watched it, but he does this really effective thing because they only ever speak over uh, a laptop, you know, like a Skype connection. Mm. And Vincent D'Onofrio is just plays, you know, Dr. So-and-so. And when he's talking to Ethan Hawke, he's always like looking at his keyboard and fidgeting and not making eye contact. But then when Ethan Hawke is saying things like, oh, so what is Bagul? And Vincent D'Onofrio is like, oh, he's this demon that feasts on the souls of children. And he's like looking around and fidgeting with his hands. And then Ethan Hawke will say, so, you know, how does he get how does he get into the real world then? And Vincent D'Onofrio will be, oh, well, obviously he's got these certain tableaus and these, uh, you know, uh, certain pictures. And if, if there's certain chances said he can come in. And then Ethan Hawke will say, I mean, what if like, uh, what if I... What if one of them was, I don't know, burned? What if one of them was found <laughs> and then he came through and then I burned the film? And then Vincent Norfolk like, looks up at the actual camera and says, what, 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 what have you done? And it's just a brilliant little touch. And I realize there's a lot of these moments of extremely subtle humor yeah. that are brilliantly played throughout the film. There's a moment when this is the, goes back to the whole house thing. Mm. When they, the, the wife finds out 
that they've moved into the actual house where the murders have taken place. Because she says, oh, you haven't done that thing again of you where you move us in like a few doors down from where a murder happens. And he goes, no, no. <laughs> Technically. And, then, <laughs> and, then, and then she says, later on, she says, the actual house, you've moved us into the house that you've moved our children at this house. And he's like trying to backtrack, <laughs> but clearly can't. And it's really well done and surprisingly funny. Um, Ethan Hawke is a really pathetic character in this as well because he's just constantly just tr- like almost he could take all of the films he finds of these ch- these the children being murdered and just take them to the police and just step out of it and save his family, but he's so uh, just determined to have fame and fortune again that he just pushes through it. That's really well played out, and quite often his wife will find him just asleep, wa- like drunk, watching old footage of himself you know being interviewed on these talk shows on vhs tips and just pathetic but the real star of this show and what really really nailed it for me this time is the use of music throughout it's it's a very quiet film and Mm. most of it is just ethan hawke in darkly lit rooms drinking being scared or just wondering what he should do next good the music um that plays because obviously the footage he finds that he watches and gets this demon bagul the demon is the most boring part of the story you can totally ignore him it doesn't matter the best parts of the film are when he's watching these old super 8 films and the music that plays over the top is boards of canada um Mm. which is a scottish band that get all of their music by having these like weird trip-hop looped beats and all uh, all audio taken from public service announcements from the 60s and 70s and stuff i'm familiar with their work they're, they're so good. This song, Gyroscope, is. I realized how terror. What I realized with this film was yes, there's a couple of jump scares. One is, is really saucy. But what I like about the whole film is just the tone of it. Um, it's more of a mood piece. Yeah. And it got to the point when I was so in the zone and completely locked into the mood and the tension mm. that even over the end credits, and I've got it now. I've got goosebumps now thinking about it. When it was just showing the credits and, the, and Boards of Canada Gyroscope was playing. It, it obviously imprinted myself it, itself in my mind so much that I was just, even then, it made me feel uneasy, even though there was nothing to see. And I realised it's probably one of my favourite horror films. Ethan Hawke is so good, and he's so varied. When you look at his filmography, it's just incredible. Like, to me, he's a... He is, although he hasn't been in that many massive films, he's never really headlined a huge movie just the variety and what he's done and the fact that he's a you know you're able to show up in you know big movies like total recall and valerian and stuff like that but also do mm. stuff like you know um like the stuff uh the the before trilogy boyhood and um smaller movies he's in robert eggers next movie the witch guy by the way um good good uh, the fact that he's able to do that and i it, it almost he's almost like a stamp of quality. Like, yes. Even if perhaps the film around him isn't that good, you know that there's going to be some quality in the scenes where he is present, if you see what I mean. So yeah. um, he's very, very safe pair of hands. So, yeah, I'm going to have to watch this again. Yeah. Because I, I think, think I'm like you. I think it just got kind of lost amidst the other Bloomhouse bits and pieces and didn't make an impact at the time. But there's probably more to it than I'm allowing I, it was it was an absolute revelation for me not uh, just because i was kind of angry at myself for being dismissive but like you just said i think i was just awash with what i assume was that kind of horror but when you watch um the conjuring which i won't we're in a bit late the conjuring which is good 
Mm. When you watch Sinister, uh, it's such a cut above those yeah. films in 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 the, the fact that it it's just it's basically Ethan Hawke for two hours, and yes. it's perfect. It's perfect because that's all you need. I will say as well, they made a sequel, and it is shit. Uh, <laughs> it is absolutely right. shit. Uh, I couldn't. Thank you, I Barry watched, Norman. I, I was so I was so locked in this film so completely thinking oh my god this is like a personal lost masterpiece to me i love ethan hawk i love the music i love the tone oh this is gorgeous and i even even the, like when you're watching a horror film and you're you're even enjoying the family drama you know yeah um but well then it, I, it's, there's a, an argument to be made that uh, it should stand up on its own dramatic merits even without the horror in a film like this. Because if you can make a film where you care about the drama, the conflict between the characters, then the horror part of it is almost like the icing on the cake, really, isn't it? And, yeah, absolutely. And, and on the other end of the spectrum, if you really don't care about the characters or the drama between them, then the horror will completely fall flat because you don't care if people live or die. The yeah, stakes yeah. Are, aren't there, if you see what I mean. Um, I will. The one final note I've, on this particular film that I was going to say is um, uh, the, for those people who are like me, when you watch people drinking in films, you want to know what they're drinking. He is clocking Buffalo Trace bourbon in this. Um, very quickly before you move on to your next one, Sinister to you, it's it's awful. It just takes beats oh. of the first one, like the you know the the deputy plays the main act, uh, the main star in it. James Ranson, I think his name is. And whilst he's fine, the film is diabolical. It's just a nasty film about just kids watching like really boring uh, titbits with no no um, tension or mood to them. And it goes on for 90 minutes and then it finishes. And I just thought, as far as I'm concerned, that film doesn't exist. Sinister, it's not just a bad horror film. Like to come after a film as good as Sinister, it's it's oh, like it's actually offensive. So I'm just not going to watch it ever geez. again. Um. I don't have any more films to talk about this week. So no. yeah, I'm all done. Cool. I'm all out. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was absolutely film of the week. Um, yeah. Is sinister. Absolute revelation. Um, but I would say, though, pushing that aside, because I decided on that at the moment. I, mean, I, I was almost like a, a ninth configuration moment for me, you know. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's the 10th configuration. I would say, though, out of all these films, uh, we've talked about out of sight before. For the horror fans, I'd say watch the Furies on Amazon Prime. It's surprisingly good. A really mm-hmm. uh, nasty, in the right way, uh, slasher film. So that's that would be my my backup film of the week. Yeah. So I'm torn between Dark Breed and Castle Freak myself for film of the week. Oh yeah. I, I, like for for horror, Castle Freak's the obvious way to go. I think Castle Freak is the better movie, but my god dark breed is so much fun uh i'm gonna say castle freak just because it is the quality movie and stuart gordon i mean he died what last year yeah yeah and so you know it's time for a it's time for a resurgence a renaissance of his work and this is a classic example of what he does really well which is getting that perfect balance between comedy drama horror gross out violence great stuff <laughs> love it but yeah i'm i'm gonna watch a lot of the films you said over the coming weeks so um 
Yeah, that's that's it for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I know the, as a little spoiler. Also, I'd like to say hello to our listeners. Um, I noticed we've had a few more listeners in America over this last week, which is quite nice. So hello to our American fans. I know yeah. that you are Keep planning, <laughs> planning mm. a... They're going to be celebrated tomorrow. You are planning, uh, it's the 19th today, by the way, to watch another series. Yes, I'm I'm in the midst of another another series of films. Uh, how many films are there in this series? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's about eight films in the series. Um, okay. It's not Children of the Corn, so don't worry. <laughs> no, because there's ten of those. And oh, it could be, it could be Howling. <laughs> could be couldn't it but yeah well you'll have to wait and see but it's i am keen it the quality is not maintained i'll put it that way <laughs> cool. well have a lovely evening and i'm yes. gonna go and watch fit to kill <laughs> yes um yeah what am i watching tonight Oof. sinister uh, you have to watch yeah sinister i again. do need to watch sinister is it on prime yes yes okay Good. I will be watching that. All right. All, I, all I have to do is write N or AP next to my notes, and I have not done it for eight That's months. So I'm so thick. But you today, could, yeah. could even cut out the middle and just have P. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll make my pen last longer. Um, cool. Okay, then. Have a good evening. Uh, I love yeah. you. Bye. Love you.